Thank you for that, Rod. And as Rod mentioned, God being the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, thinking about time. I mean, do you ever think about time itself? I'm sure you do from time to time. We all do. Sometimes we have too much time, although that's kind of rare. If you're a student stuck in detention or you're waiting at the DMV, you feel like you have too much time. But usually it's the opposite. We feel we don't have enough time. Time moves too fast. It's like a train that can't be stopped. Kids grow up too fast. Moments slip by us too fast. Or maybe this has happened to you. Have you ever gone on a, a nice vacation? Whatever it might be. And don't you feel this is the case, that in the months leading up to the vacation, it feels like time just crawls along, that it's just taken years to finally get to what you're longing for. But when the vacation comes, it goes by just like an instant. It's, it's gone. There's seven days in Hawaii or whatever, just fly right by. Has that ever happened to you? But beyond all this, do you ever think about time itself? Not the passing of time in your life, but more the question like, what, what is time? How would you actually define time itself? Time, to scientists and philosophers alike, has been a very difficult thing to define. And some go the easy route, that time is what clocks measure. Others say time is what keeps everything from happening at once. But finally, some say time is just the measurement of change in the universe. Let's try and imagine this just for the sake of illustration. Imagine a universe where nothing changes, nothing moves. Everything is frozen. It's like perfectly still from planets to atoms. Nothing is moving or changing. And in that universe, does time exist? Is time passing? If you say yes, how do you know that you have nothing by which to measure time? But if you say no, then you're saying time doesn't actually exist on its own. Time is just a concept we use to describe and measure the change of other things. Are you confused yet? When you start thinking about time itself, getting confused does not take very much time. But if you want to get really confused, you start thinking about the relativity of time. We measure time in seconds, minutes, hours, years. That doesn't necessarily mean time flows at a constant rate. Think about water flowing in a river, and depending on the size of the channel, the water will move faster or slower. It's relative to the size of the river. And Einstein found that time was the same way, the relativity of time. Time flows relative to space. So that being the case, according to Einstein's theory of relativity, that the faster you move through space the slower time goes. It's kind of like a river. The wider space of the river, the slower the water. And likewise, that the faster you move through space, time slows down. Not something you'd ever notice unless you start traveling close to the speed of light. Not something we really have to worry about at this point. But things get interesting. Just thinking about time, how time works and operates and exists, is quite an interesting thing to think about. It can make your head kind of spin a little bit, but then you start bringing God into the equation. You start thinking about God and time. Really gets confusing, really makes your brain hurt. But just thinking about, you know, how does God relate to time? Does God experience time? Is God bound by time? And for God, it's not a matter of whether or not he can travel at the speed of light. God doesn't even travel. He's an entirely different being. Makes us wonder, it's fair to wonder, how does he relate to time? We know that God has a different relation to space than us. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere present at once. So it stands to reason, I guess, that he probably has a different relation to time as well. Different relation to space, different relation to time. Indeed, some people believe that to God, all of time is experienced as a single moment. That past, present, future to God is all just now. But it's impossible for us to even conceive of what that is like. Or does God just exist outside of time altogether? You know, before God created this universe, space did not exist. Therefore, did time not exist? And when God created time and space, did he limit himself to the bounds of time just to accommodate us creatures? We don't know. Bible doesn't say. There's one thing we do know, however, namely that that God is different. 
He's bigger than us. He's greater than us. He's mightier than us. He's transcendent. He's, he's different than us. And we know, we know this. We can add to the list that God's relationship to time is yet one more thing that separates us from God. That, that distinction between the creator and the creature. He is different altogether than us. He's the creator. He's almighty. He's transcendent. We are not. But his special relationship to time is one more thing that shows just how different God is. Kind of like Psalm 90 says, Psalm 90 verses 2 and 4 says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and to the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. This morning, we're going to be in 2 Peter, and we come to learn something very similar about how God and it relates to time. And contrary to God being bound by time, he holds time in his hands. Time is just another tool through which he governs the world. But we'll find Peter doesn't stop there. Not only do we learn that God uses time, but we come to find out what he uses it for. It doesn't tell us everything about how God relates to time, but we learn a thing or two about how he uses it. And although in one sense, we can say that time is completely insignificant to God. A thousand years is like a day. But in another sense, time is very significant to God, especially from our perspectives, it allows for our salvation. For us, time is a limited commodity. We have a relatively short amount of time on this earth, after which we have an eternal amount of time. But the thing is, in a sense, our time in eternity, what our time in eternity will be like is determined by, in one part, how we use our time in this life. That's something to think about. To us, time is very significant. The days are very significant. It we need to use them wisely. And that's something we're going to learn from this text in 2 Peter chapter 3. You can open your Bibles there now, if you haven't already. 2 Peter chapter 3. In case you're wondering, you know, when this whole COVID lockdown situation began, I, early on I preached through 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 7, which is another passage on time. And then we learned what God is doing with our days. We learned that he's working all of history Toward a predetermined end. He has an end in sight. And that is meant to encourage us. Even as we walk through dark, strange, or difficult days. That judgment is coming. God will hold all accountable for how they lived. How they used their time. Um, but there's also a rescue for God's people. But I remember back then. I very much wanted to keep going. And preach through the next passage. Verses 8 through 13. Which continues this theme of time. That will be the passage we have for this morning. Suffice it to say, I found an opportune time this week to preach through this passage. Pun intended. But 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13, it's a most interesting yet sobering passage. We come to learn a little bit more how God views time, how he uses time, specifically our days. Measurement of time we call a day. How God views our days how he uses our days, how we should be using our days as well. And I'll say again, especially in days like these, uh, understanding God's relationship to the days and our relationship to the days matters. We find that perspective right here. Let's read the passage, 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. You can follow along as I read, starting in 2 Peter 3, 8. As he nears the end of his Letter, he says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people 
ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I love this passage. It continues the theme of time from verses 3 through 7. Only now it focuses on the days. And for this morning from this text, I want to help us discover four truths about the days of our lives that you may spend your time well. How you use your time, it matters. To us, it is short. And days like these, especially how you use your time matters. I want you to get that right. Use your time well. So we're going to find four truths about the days of our lives. You may spend your time well. The first is this. The days are insignificant to God. Now I'll explain that and why that matters. But the days are insignificant to God. Have you ever wondered, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Why hasn't the world ended already? Can we speed this thing along? You know, the false teachers in the early church, in the early church, rather, had an answer. Their answer was, well, Jesus is not coming back, and the world is not going to end. They simply denied the future judgment, and they used that as a justification to indulge in all their fleshly desires without any guilt. But they arrived at the wrong conclusion. And why is that? Because they failed to take into account God's word. That's back in verse 5. And something really important escaped their notice. And Peter, earlier in chapter 3, he addresses the mockers and the false teachers. And he lets them know, hey, something has escaped their notice. What escaped their notice in their mockery? It's the word of God. They fail to take into account that God, by his word, created this whole world. By his word, flooded the world. And by his word, he's now reserved the world for destruction by fire. And he says the judgment of ungodly men. And so by God's more sure word, you can be sure the end is coming. A judgment will happen. Christ will return. False teachers made a critical mistake in denying the word. Although it wasn't really a mistake. They just did that to justify their own sinful lifestyles. And he lets them know, well, what's coming? Now, that being said, and that's from earlier in the chapter, the question, though, still stands. Namely, you know, for us, we we don't mock or doubt God's word. We're those who believe God's word. But we can still find ourselves asking the same question, like, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Why hasn't the world ended? When is he returning? Is he coming back? The mockers keep on mocking, so... Where is God? Why why doesn't he show up? And the Christians from the very beginning lived with this constant hope that Jesus would return soon. It's going to be soon. Every generation believes it will be soon. But as the years flew by early on, the apostles started to die off. Christians very early began asking like, okay, well, where's the Lord? Said he's coming back pretty soon, right? What's the explanation of his supposed delay? That question keeps getting asked. Now, Peter, though, in this passage, he turns his attention away from the mockers. He's no longer addressing the mockers of false teachers. He's addressing, verse 8, the beloved, the church, believers. He's talking to you now. The false teachers, they got the end wrong because God's word escaped their notice. But for us... God's word does not escape our notice, but he's going to show something else escapes our notice so that we too can can get the end wrong and, and miss things. And for us, it is God's relationship to time. You don't need to you make sure that doesn't escape your notice. God's relationship to time. If you wonder, where is God? Where is Jesus? When will he return? If you're asking, what's taking so long? Don't let God's relationship to time escape your notice. This is verse 8. Let's read that again. He's talking to you now. He says, but do not let 
this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. If you fail to take into consideration God's relationship to time, you're going to wonder why it's taking so long. But God is not late. Jesus is not tardy. You cannot confine God to your timetable. Early church thought it was extreme that Jesus had not returned after 50 years. Like, hey, it's it's been 50 years. Like, what's taking so long? Can't be that much longer, right? But here we are some 2,000 years later. And I don't think they ever would have seriously imagined it would be at least 2,000 years before Christ returned. And you know what? Who knows? It's entirely possible. It could be another 2,000 years. To you, that's probably inconceivable. Just like to them, it was likely inconceivable that it could be 2,000 more years. But you know what? Even if it is another 2,000 years, that doesn't change anything. The time in between to God is irrelevant. 50 years, 2,000 years, 20,000 years. Time is insignificant to God. Now, I want to mention this verse here, verse 8, gets thoroughly abused by some. People try and make this verse say all sorts of things. You just have to remember, whatever you make this verse say, it also says the exact opposite. He doesn't just say that to God, one day is like a thousand years. He also says a thousand years is like one day. So whatever you do with this verse, it cuts both ways. It will work for you and against you at the same time. So just beware. For example, many use this verse to, to justify a view of creation. They say, look, see the days in Genesis 1, they're not real days. They're thousands of years because to God, a day is like thousands of years. So these days must be like thousands of years. But based on this verse, you could say just the same that, you know, God can do in one day what would otherwise take thousands of years. It it cuts both ways each and every time. All this goes to say, just beware using this verse as some little proof text. Peter is making a simple point. Time is different to God and God is indifferent to time. Time is different to God. God is indifferent to time. God has a different relationship to time than us. What exactly that is, we we can't fully know. Can't fully conceive. We don't have all the answers here. But we know God is not bound by time. He's not bound by our timetable. In some way, he's above and beyond that. But when you consider things from God's timeless perspective, You can say Christ's return, it's not early, it's not late, it's right on time. Whenever it is, it will be right on time. And it's really all about having the right perspective. It's kind of like the the story of the blind men and the elephant. I think this is an ancient Indian parable on perspective. There are six blind men and they're asked to describe what an an elephant looked like. They're all blind, they can only describe it by touching it. And they each touch a different part of the elephant. One blind man feels the leg and says, an elephant is like a pillar. The second feels the tail and says, an elephant is like a rope. The third feels the trunk and says, the elephant is like a tree branch. The fourth feels the ear and says, an elephant is like a fan. The fifth feels the belly and says, the elephant is like a wall. And the last feels the the tusk and says, an elephant is like a pipe. Each blind man thinks he knows exactly what the elephant looks like. And in part, they're all right. But in all, they're all wrong. They miss the bigger perspective, the bigger picture. And so they get the ultimate picture wrong. It's the same with us and God at times. Our human perspective of God is extremely limited. Partly because we're finite. The finite can never fully grasp the infinite. God is big. We're bound by time and space. But when we start to think of God only from our limited perspective, you're bound to get something wrong. You need to open your eyes. And this is why we need to let God just speak for himself and define himself from scripture. He needs to reveal himself to us. We cannot simply find him by our own philosophy. 
God is not a man. We need to see him as he's revealed in his word. From our perspective, when it comes to the timing of Christ's return, sure, it seems like it's been a long time. But from God's perspective, it's been no time at all. From our perspective, Jesus seems late. And it seems he's so late, some people start to doubt if he's ever going to come back at all and if it's even true. That happened in the early church. It hadn't been 100 years. They started thinking like, it's taking too long. But from God's perspective, everything is right on schedule. Everything that's ever happened, including COVID in 2020, it's right on schedule. It's exactly when it was supposed to happen. And Peter doesn't answer our every question about God, time, and the end. But he does give us a comforting reminder that God is God. He knows what he's doing. He controls time. He he controls the days. And so in one sense, you need to remember the days are insignificant to God. These issues of timing are insignificant to God. I can say this, that, that overall... This issue of perspective answers most of the big why questions people have. People have questions of God. It's not necessarily wrong to ask those questions. Some questions don't have typical easy answers like, why is there so much evil in the world if God is good? Big why questions. And some people, though, they can't find a satisfactory answer in their little brains They end up concluding, well, God must not exist. Since I can't find an answer to this question, God must not even exist. That really is the height of foolish ignorance. God's not a man. Do not think of God like a man. He's not like us. Does this fact escape your notice? Peter questions. I mean, the being of God should go beyond our brain's capacity to understand There should be things you can't grasp about God. He's infinite. Like I said, that the finite can never fully grasp the infinite. And so many of man's supposed problems with God, though, are are resolved when you come at them from his perspective, a divine, eternal, timeless perspective. You're the blind man. God is, is God. At the very least, you know, who are you to call on God to give an accounting of himself? Who are you to deny his existence just because you can't figure everything out? I mean, you just read the book of Job and you see how God himself rebukes those who dare to question him just because they don't have it all figured out. But here, Peter opens us up to the right perspective on God and time. And no, this doesn't answer our every question. But it does help answer one of them. Why Has Christ's return been delayed? And the answer, it hasn't. And God knows no delays. He holds time itself in his hands and he uses it entirely for his purposes. The days are insignificant to God. But we're not done. Because remember, it's all about perspective. And there's another perspective here that we need to grasp. Because from one perspective... We find that the days are insignificant to God. One day, it's like a thousand years. A thousand years, it's like one day. But from another perspective, the days are very significant to God. So to give you the other side, here's the the second truth to learn. The days are significant to God. First, the days are insignificant to God from verse 8. Now, secondly, the days are significant to God. What do we mean by this? Well, let's, let's read verse 9. He continues and says, The Lord is not slow about his promise. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So as we've seen, in one sense, time itself is completely insignificant to God. Time travel to God is a joke. God does not need to worry about traveling faster than the speed of light or, you know, going through a wormhole to go through time. Time time is nothing to God, but at the same time, God uses time for his plans and purposes 
And so from this perspective, time is very significant to God. The days are significant because he's chosen to to create them and use them redemptively for his greater purposes. People love sales. And your favorite store is offering a sale. You know, that, that dress you always wanted, that the shoes you wanted, that gadget you wanted. It's on sale and it's a limited time offer. It gets people going. It works. Even though in reality, you're probably only saving like $5 and you might drive an hour and spend more in gas to go to the sale. But still, that the fact that it's a limited time offer just gets people moving. They want to get in on the deal before it's too late. In a sense, God has chosen to use this time for a special sale. It's not really a sale. It's more, more of a giveaway. That's salvation. It's offered to all. It's free. But you only have a limited time to get in on this offer before it's gone. You know, the, this free offer of salvation is all over scripture. Romans 10, 9, if, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And of course, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him will not perish, have eternal life. But this, this free offer of salvation won't last forever. So this is why you are called to repent and believe before it's too late. And from our perspective, and this is now from our perspective, that's all we need to worry about. God is using these days redemptively. The offer of salvation is out there. Scripture says today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Today is the day because there may not be a tomorrow. So turn to Christ now because this offer will not last forever. And this, in fact, is why God delays. Remember, Peter is now turning his attention toward believers. And he knows that even they wonder, why has Christ's return taken so long? Why, why the delay, so to speak? Why the slowness, as some count slowness? But verse 9, he gives a direct answer. You know, Lord, why are you so slow about your promise of Christ's return? And salvation and judgment, let's kind, of, let's kind of move on. Let's just bring an end to this evil world, bring in the kingdom. Why the delay? But the answer in verse 9, God delays the end so that the kingdom might be populated. That there might actually be people in heaven. He's holding off judgment so that some may be saved. There will come a day when God will judge the world. Everyone who's left alive, even the dead, will be brought before the throne of God to be judged. And when that time comes, this offer of salvation is over. That it, it's too late. It's point for man to die once, then comes a judgment. There, there's no second chance there. It will be simply judgment time. Every unbeliever who refused to believe when they had the time will be simply sentenced away from God, into hell. So when the end comes, every unbelieving person left alive will be effectively doomed. That's, that can kind of be a problem though. You know, how so? Just as an example, I was saved in 2001 at the age of 18. And I can say for my own sake, I'm very glad that Jesus did not come back in the year 2000. I'm sure glad the world didn't end with the whole Y2K. Remember that, by the way, Y2K. I'm glad the world didn't end back then because if it did, where would I be? I would be in hell. I'm sure glad God delayed the judgment at least a few more years. That gave me, in his sovereignty, the time to repent and believe 2001. I'm sure you feel the same way. And this, in fact, this is Peter's explicit explanation for the supposed delay in the end. You see that in verse 9? Why is God so slow about his promise of Christ's return and the end? The answer, he's not being slow. He's being patient. There's a difference. 
I'll say that again. God is not being slow about the end. He's being patient. And there is a difference. There's a lot of evil in the world. And there's a lot of sin in the world. It's, I don't know, if you ask me, it sounds like it's only getting worse. And worse and worse. And it makes you cry out more and more. Like, God, hurry it up now. Like, where's the justice? Where's the judgment? Where's the righteousness? But God withholds his wrath for now, not due to indifference, like he doesn't care, not due to inability, like he can't do anything about it. He could do something about it, and he does care. But he's holding back because of patience. God is holding back his wrath and patiently enduring man's sin so that sinners might have this thing called time to repent, believe, and be saved. So the answer to God's supposed delay is simply mercy, his mercy and his patience. I mean, do you realize, don't you, that technically if God were being only just, everyone would be instantly killed because the wages of sin is death. And just sentenced to hell and God would be doing nothing wrong. He'd be perfectly righteous to do that. In fact, really, there shouldn't even be a human race. Because immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, they should have been executed, sentenced away from God forever. The wages of sin is death. That's it. They fell short. They're out of his holy presence. End of the human race. But throughout all of history... All of history, God has patiently endured all of our sin against him. He's given us many days on this earth. Why? Well, one answer is that we might have an opportunity to repent and believe. If God were to bring down the hammer of his judgment right now, every unbeliever would be condemned. But God delays that more and more are given the time to repent, believe, and be saved. Does this mean God will keep delaying forever or until everyone is saved? No. Rather, God will keep storing up his wrath and holding back the end until every last believer written in his book comes to salvation. God knows those who are his. And when the last of his elect comes to believe, then there will be nothing left to hold back the end. That's precisely what Peter says in verse 9. We actually find here, One of the strongest verses on God's sovereignty and salvation. God holds back the end because he's patient toward you. You look in verse 9. When Peter says you, he's talking about his audience. The beloved, verse 8, the church, believers. God delays for the sake of the elect, not wishing for any of them to perish, but for all of those whom he set his love on to come to repentance and faith. Now, maybe you've heard people use this verse to support universal salvation, or at least God's desire for universal salvation. Some will use this verse and say, look, see, God doesn't want any to perish. He wants all to come to salvation. But you have to ask, you know, who is this verse referring to? Just dealing with this one verse before us. Who's the subject? You see, the any of verse 9 has to be defined in the text. It could be talking about, any number of things out of context. God does not want any American to perish or any Russian, any person, any plant, any animal. Like what's the any referring to when it says God does not want any to perish? The context has to answer that question. Who's the subject? And verse nine defines the subject very clearly, at least with this one verse. What's the nearest antecedent to any? What's the subject? It's Verse 8, it's you, it's the beloved believers, the church. Peter is saying, God is not wishing for any of you to perish, the church, but for all of you believers to come to repentance. That is the reason for God's supposed delay. It's not everything written in God's book. Are not our days all numbered? Just like David said, Psalm 139, verse 16, in your book were written All the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. All of your days have been ordained. God's not surprised by your your timeline. 
And although we can be clueless, God knows what's going on here. He has a plan. History is marching along according to his plan. Part of that plan includes the salvation of some out of judgment. And the end will come when that plan has run its course. Jesus came at just the right time the first time. And he'll come back at just the right time the second time. And you don't need to concern yourselves with that timing. Notice Peter doesn't bother setting dates, trying to figure out when that will be. It's like, okay, I think it's one more year. Don't concern yourself with that. What matters though is that you have the right perspective on time and God, that you don't doubt his promises because it's taking too long as you count slowness. Don't let that lead you to doubt God like the mockers, but instead simply take him at his word and trust what he says. We know not everyone will be saved, but some will. And so from our perspective, we simply need to preach the good news to all. God will do his part. You don't have to worry about that. But for our part, we need to thank God for showing us mercy. Praise God for giving us the time to repent and believe. And with whatever time we got left, we will use that for God's glory by just holding out this free offer of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. So let others know these days won't last forever. And for now then, we can say that the days are significant to God. They're redemptively significant to God. But one day, even these days will end. And this brings us to the third truth about the days of our lives. We can add the third truth. One day is very significant to God. There's one day that is very significant to God. This comes from verse 10 and we'll get into verse 12 too, but look at verse 10 now. He goes on and he says, he's going to pick on one day, so to speak. It says in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. You know that God has ordered human history Isaiah 46, verse 9, God says, for I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's part of who God is. He declares the end from the beginning. The end has been declared. Human history will end in what's called the day of the Lord. Here in 2 Peter, we learn a few important things about this very significant day to God. First, we learn the day will come, right? There are those, the mockers who denied this truth. They said that the day is not coming. It's not even going to come. But we've learned, although it has been delayed for a good reason, God is merely being patient. No, it's coming though. That day will come. The concept of the day of the Lord is all throughout the Old Testament. The day of the Lord really, it's more of a technical term in scripture referring to the the culmination of history. It's a future time, not necessarily a single day of darkness, destruction, and damnation. This judgment has many facets takes place in many stages, but they're all described under this umbrella of the day of the Lord. It's a time when God will both rescue his people and judge the wicked once and for all. Now, admittedly, Peter is not here trying to give us a theological lesson on the day of the Lord. His goal is simply stating the fact, first, the day will come. Right? Yeah, it's, it's been delayed for the sake of the elect, but the day will come. Secondly, he tells us how it will come. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, you're not going to see it coming. Just like Matthew 24, Jesus said, you don't know the day or the hour. It will come upon the world unexpectedly. Just like in the days of Noah, right before the flood to the moment they were swept away by the waters, they were engaged in the normal affairs of life. Had no idea what was coming. And so it will be again in the future. This is all the more reason you need to get right with God 
now because you don't know if there even will be a tomorrow. But thirdly now, Peter spends most of his time telling us exactly what will happen on that day. He's already mentioned back in verse 7, the judgment of the ungodly. He kind of lets them have it. Like when that day comes, it's judgment of the wicked. But here in verse 10 and beyond, he shifts his attention away from the judgment of the wicked. And he talks about creation itself, which is very interesting. And the mockers were contending as part of their, their mockery that, look, this world doesn't change. It keeps on spinning. The cycles, the seasons, the moon, the stars, nothing changes. This universe is so constant. It always will be. And look, that's true for now. But Peter reminds them and us that look, even that too will end. He says, verse 10, for the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. It's a terrifying picture. Those in the ancient world didn't have a full understanding of the atomic structure like we do. But they did understand that all matter was, could be broken down into irreducible parts. And the word Adam comes straight from the Greek. At its most basic level, though, everything will disintegrate. Existence itself seems like it's torn apart with a roar. And this word roar is used of all sorts of terrifying sounds. Like the sound of an arrow as it's coming at you. The sound of a waterfall as you're about to go over. The sound of a snake as it prepares to strike. This word is used for all those things. None more so than the crackle of flames. The point is when God destroys by fire... All sounds are drowned out by this terrifying roar. And then it says the earth and its works will be burned up. So I guess you better see the Grand Canyon now. It's not going to be around forever. All the great wonders of the world, take them in because they're not going to last. Everything will burn. The pyramids, the Great Wall, Empire State, I mean, you name it. Every work of art will be gone. Every advancement Everything will be lost. But he continues down in verse 12. Jump there. He reiterates. We'll come back to verse 11. But he says in verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning. And the elements will melt with intense heat. And in a sense this is still mystery. In another sense living in the atomic age. We kind of can get this now right? The picture, though, is that nothing survives. Nothing goes beyond this. Nothing except people. You realize that everything in this world that God made will perish before his new heavens and new earth. Everything except people. Every person, though, will survive the destruction of the world because they have an appointment to make. Their body might die, but, but they'll go on. They have an appointment at the great white throne. And that truly is a significant day to God. Because on that final, final day, all wrongs will be made right. Perfect justice will be served. Whatever problem with evil you think exists will be resolved. And unrighteousness will end. Revelation 20 verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. And only those who trust in Jesus escape that final judgment. But for the rest, verse 15 of Revelation 20 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that's the end. When you realize how the world ends though, when you realize what comes at the end, when you realize it's only a matter of time, then you find out not only is that, that one day, that, that final day, very significant to God, I guess that means it also should be pretty significant to us. The end of days is important to us. And this will bring us to our fourth and final truth about the days of our lives we want to reflect on. You can finish number four. One day is very significant to us. 
one day is very significant to us. Let's go back to verse 11 that we skipped over. He points out, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God? Verse 13, but according to his promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In the previous passage, Peter's focus was on the mockers. The message for them and all unbelievers is the same. In light of the end, what do you need to do? Repent and believe before it's too late. This offer won't stand forever. But again, now in our passage, he's not talking to the mockers. He's talking to the beloved, the church. And so there's a different message in light of all these things, in light of the end, what's the message for you? The message is a question. What sort of people ought you to be? But you know, it's not really a question. It's an admonition. The answer is obvious. He answers in verse 11, a holy people, a godly people. Far from living for the world and the things of this world, you should be living for the next world, even longing for, verse 12, the coming day of God. We long for that day. It'll break our heart when we see the lost judged. We leave that to God's righteousness, but we long for the day when righteousness finally dwells on the earth. It's not wrong to enjoy this life. Some Christians get so caught up that they find themselves living for the here and the now, living for stuff. But that's wrong. That can be fatal. It's like a marathon runner stopping to smell the roses or play in the ocean. It's like, you're in a race here. Like, you don't have time for this. Don't get so distracted. And the same applies for us. But now that we're told in scripture what the end of the race looks like, that should all the more compel us and propel us to keep running with endurance and holiness. Run and live as if we are right now citizens of that final place, the new heavens and the new earth. Because what do you know? We are. Philippians 3, 20, 21 says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. You realize Jesus has the power, all the wickedness in the world today, the evil. He has the power to put all things into subjection to himself just like that. And one day he will in his timing. But for now, this is just our hope our desire as we wait for him. But this should be a purifying hope. If you're born again, if you're a kingdom citizen, it should lead you to start living that way right now. Is what John says in 1 John 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. It's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Peter would agree with Paul and John. And did not Peter say in his first letter that we are aliens and strangers in this world? And truly now we're, we're pilgrims. We're looking for and longing for a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're not righteous. We don't belong in that kingdom, but God through Christ has made us righteous. And now it's our desire to live righteously, to live in a manner worthy of our calling and our hope. So we find then that the reality of the end and everything we learn about the end, it's not a motivation for inactivity. The conclusion is not like just go sit in a monastery in the desert, just wait for the end. To just, you know, escape the world and just wait. No. The days we have are too significant for inactivity. Although we are indeed saved and we will not meet judgment. 
God still wants us to be active. And the conclusion is to instead use the days he's given us that we have left, not for sin, but not for ourselves, for God, for his glory, for evangelism, for good works, for, for honoring him by the power of the spirit. So ask yourself, what do you live for? You have a set number of days. How are you spending them? Are you wasting your time? Are you consumed with stuff? Realize it's all going to burn. Your possessions, your money, your house. Can't take any of it with you. And yes, it's, it's okay in a measure to enjoy the blessings God gives you in life. Yes, but don't live for them. You hold everything you have with open hands. Lord gives, Lord takes away. Be content with rich or poor. That's fine. But make sure you're living and being driven by the Lord, his kingdom, his purposes. You're seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. The false teachers of Peter's day denied the reality of the end to justify their moral behavior. But you realize the exact opposite should be the case. The reality of the end, we should acknowledge that, not deny it. And that becomes the justification not for our bad behavior, but for our godly behavior. It's good to think about judgment. It'll do you well. Think about God's wrath being poured out on sin. Think about how much you deserve that. Because you and I were were guilty. But then you, you take those thoughts right to the cross, to the foot of the cross. You realize that God already sent his son into this world to live, to die, to rise for our sins, to pay for that wrath, to bring us into his eternal kingdom in which righteousness dwells. These are the thoughts that will ignite the fire in you to serve the Lord now, to use the remainder of your days to be a holy people and to let the light of Christ shine to the world, to just hold out that light until all shall enter in. And let us be that type of people living in light of the end. Pray with me. Our good Father in heaven, this is our desire to be this type of people. What type of people ought we be in light of the coming end? We are not those who mock or doubt. We are those who have been called and our eyes have been opened. We see in your word what is true and we believe. We trust you, Lord. And knowing what is to come, a final judgment, a reckoning, but also a rescue of those made righteous. Lord, let these truths both Encourage us and propel us forward to live godly lives, to pursue Christ-likeness, to engage in evangelism, to let the light shine while there's still time. We don't know how much time. That's not our concern. We can simply trust you for the days of our lives. But each and every day we have, let us wake up thinking, how can we serve our Father, His kingdom and His purposes with this day? Makes the people driven by you and your eternity. May we live in light of this perspective and uh, we thank you for your grace upon us and giving it to us from your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.